All right, now let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, we'll read verses 1 to 8. Our passage this morning will be verses 3 to 8, but we'll read from verse 1 to understand the contrast. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burnt. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we pray that you'll draw near to us as we draw near to you. We humble ourselves before you, and we ask you to teach us by your word, teach us also by the work of your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. Draw us near in true faith and true repentance and grant us, Lord, assurance of salvation. And may we not be as it is described here in the sense of falling away, but may we be those who produce fruit and receive a blessing from God. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, we have come to a passage of Scripture that is a point of controversy and misunderstanding over many, many years. This passage of Scripture has several interpretations Yet, there is actually only one true interpretation that we have to understand, we have to reflect upon that true interpretation and proceed accordingly. Let me first explain what I think are the misinterpretations of the passage, briefly explain what they are and why they are incorrect, and then when we delve into the passage itself, we will see the points that the passage makes, and also derive some lessons and clarifications at the end of our message. Firstly... When this passage is read, it's often said that in this passage, he's simply describing a situation that is theoretical, hypothetical, a straw man, something that is actually not true, not real, but something that is in the world of speculation. It's a speculative passage, it's a hypothetical passage, not describing a real situation not describing real people who experience this. And he's simply doing that to kind of exaggerate and to make people terrified and, and live accordingly. Or for them to think of the passage as something that they need to, or could just brush aside. They don't need to take it seriously because he's just being hypothetical. Well, this is not hypothetical. It's not hypothetical because nothing in the Bible is hypothetical. Everything is for our life and godliness, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Everything is for us to know and to contemplate related to our relationship to God, who God is and who we are, and how to rightly walk with Him in this life. Everything in the Bible is like that. Nothing in the Bible is mere theory, mere hypothesis. Nothing is like that. 
The Bible has truth for us to obey. Now, we also know he's not talking in the hypothetical because of verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, he says there are two outcomes to the reception of the Word of God. In verse 7, there is the blessing because of fruit that's born, good fruit is born. And in verse 8, there is a curse. It's burned up. There's thorns and thistles. So either you have good fruit or you have thorns and thistles. And this is a reality that we find everywhere in the Bible. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, this reality. So therefore, this analogy he uses of the fruit and the thorns and thistles shows he's talking about real situations because that's the way the Bible speaks from Genesis to Revelation. Furthermore, he is talking about things related to salvation and the fruit of one's life because of verses 9 to 11. Notice in verses 9 to 11, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there in verses 9 to, to 12, he's saying that I'm talking about things related to salvation and I'm encouraging you to bear fruit. I see you are bearing fruit, but keep on doing so and make sure each one of you is doing so until the very end. That's his point. So it's not the hypothetical. Secondly, he's not talking about loss of salvation. He is not talking about loss of salvation. We know that because of verse 6. Verse 6, And then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I say verse 6 is relevant. It's relevant in this sense to refute the idea that loss of salvation is possible. Because usually most of the proponents of loss of salvation assert that that salvation can be regained. They assert that if you lose it now, you can regain it in the next five minutes. You can regain it in the next hour or the next day or the next week or the next year. You can regain it and you can lose it. You can lose it and regain it constantly. But verse 6 says it's impossible. It uses the term impossible. So that means it cannot be regained if it was in, fir in fact first lost. Another reason why he's not talking about loss of salvation is our apostle has already asserted that salvation cannot be lost. He's already asserted that in chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He says we have become partakers of Christ. We are true partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Meaning, if we don't hold firm until the end, we have never truly in the first place become partakers of Christ. That means that there was nothing that they originally possessed in a true sense that they lost. They had something in a superficial sense at the beginning that they gave up. That's why they did not endure until the end. They didn't hold firm until the end. Not only is it there in 3.14, but it's right here in our passage in chapter 6, verse 3. 
He says, we will press on to maturity, verse 1. We will, let us press on to maturity, and that will happen if God permits, verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. If God permits, if God's will is at work in our life to produce good fruit in us, we will press on to maturity. But if God's will is not there, we will not press on to maturity, which means ultimately our salvation rests in the hand of God. That's why it says in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And why Jesus said in John 10, 25-30, that whoever is in his hand and whoever is in the Father's hand shall never perish. I shall give them eternal life and they shall never perish. As well. Hebrews 13, verse 21. Hebrews 13, verse 21. We'll begin at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This prayer that he prays on behalf of the saints is for the God of peace to be with them through Christ and Christ's blood, verse 21, to equip us in every good thing to do his will. God will equip us in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That means that if we're going to persevere, if we're going to endure, if we're going to hold fast until the end, it will be because God intends for that to be something that is born and true in our own life. It becomes true in our life because of Him, if God permits. So, this is not speaking of the loss of salvation, because within this letter and elsewhere in Scripture, we find that if we truly possess salvation, God will ensure that that salvation comes to fruition from beginning to end. Thirdly, this passage is sometimes interp is interpreted as teaching that these people described who have fallen away are true believers who have lost rewards. They are true believers who have lost rewards. However, in this case, he's not talking about the loss of rewards. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about salvation. How do we know he's talking about salvation? Because he has been speaking of those issues from the beginning of his letter, number one. Number two, notice in verse nine. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He knows enough of them, enough of his readers, to know that they have borne fruit. He is admonishing them, yet he knows that they are bearing fruit and that they possess salvation. He's saying the things that accompany salvation. He's talking about salvation. He's not talking about um, loss of rewards. He's not talking about the topic of rewards which the scriptures discuss in other places. The context here is salvation. Verse 9, the things that accompany salvation. Not lack of salvation, 
in verse 9, 9 to 12, but salvation. The lack of salvation is in verses 4 to 6, 4 to 6 and verse 8. Furthermore, elsewhere in Scripture, we know that if there is good fruit born, whether it is 30, 60, or 100-fold, Matthew 13, whether it's 30, 60, or 100-fold, then those people are believers. But in the case of those who do not bear fruit, who bear thorns and thistles, verse 8, thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, that is, it's the time of cursing is near, and it ends up, when it finally is cursed, it ends up being burned. Those are that passage in Matthew 13, 1 to 23, describe unbelievers because they do not bear any fruit, any true fruit, for that, that evidence their salvation. No fruit that evidence their salvation. Therefore, he's not talking about loss of rewards. Furthermore, within the letter, he uses a corporate example and a personal example to describe people that we are about to explain. He's describing Israel in the wilderness in Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 and 4 describe Israel in the wilderness under the time of Moses, in the time of Moses, under his leadership. Those people, the vast majority of them, were unbelievers who had many blessings showered upon them, but they were unbelievers. And he describes them as such in chapters 3 and 4. Another example, the personal example, is Esau in chapter 12. Esau in chapter 12, 12, 14 to 17. In this personal example, he's showing that it's possible for someone to have the benefits of salvation proclaimed, but never embrace them. 14, Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or a godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it, with tears. Esau is the personal example that did not pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He did not pursue that and peace with all. He did not pursue peace with all and sanctification. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He came short of the grace of God, which means it was in his grasp, but he came short of grasping it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. He had a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness produces thorns and thistles, not good fruit. And he was defiled by that. He was immoral and godless, he says in 16. And how did he manifest, one way in this case, how did he manifest his immorality and godlessness? He had his mind fixed on earthly things. He claimed when he came out from the field that he was famished. He was starving to death. He claimed that his brother was making some food and he sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
the birthright not only had the physical implications, but it had spiritual implications and connotations, and he wanted nothing to do with that. He didn't care about anything like that. What his father believed, the birthright relates to what his father believed, Isaac. He wanted nothing to do with that. He simply wanted to get his belly full because he had his mind fixed on earthly things. And then, when he realized that he would not inherit the blessing that Jacob would, he wasn't seeking repentance in the true sense, verse 17, no place for repentance. He sought for the blessing without the repentance. He wanted the goodness of God without the holiness of God. He did not want to give up his sin. So, these are clearly matters of salvation. Not loss of rewards, but matters of salvation. Therefore, what is the correct interpretation? The correct interpretation is that Hebrews 6, 4-6 and verse 8, describes people who have access to the truth of God, who hear the truth of God, who say they believe the truth of God, who show some evidences of being Christian or being believers, but they're really not believers in the true sense. They claim to be, maybe. They embrace it. They enjoy it. They do so temporarily. They do so superficially, but they're not true believers. And sometimes they will ultimately show or manifest themselves as being false believers. Sometimes it takes a year. Sometimes it takes a day. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Sometimes it takes 30 years. It may take a long time, but eventually they will open their mouth, they will behave in certain ways, they will say something and say, I never really believed that anyways. And they walk away from it. This happens many, many times. It happens many, many times. That's what he's describing here. He's saying to all of us who hear the word of God, do not be like that. That's why he said so many times before and also later, each one of you, make sure you're not like that. The purpose is for us to be exhorted to, and encouraged and admonished by the exhortation. Encouraged to persevere, to continue in godliness, to bear fruit. Not superficial fruit, but true fruit. Bear fruit in our life. And also, not to be a pretender. And if we are a pretender and we're hearing the word of God, to repent now. Repent without waiting. Don't wait next year. Don't say, I'll do it when I'm married or 10 years from now or when I have children. Don't do th say that. Repent now. Turn away from sin now. Believe truly now. Live for the kingdom of God now. Live for God now. Not for the world now. Not for your own whims and fancies now. Live for God and God alone. Live for his kingdom. That's the purpose of this warning. This is what he's been doing before and what he will continue to do throughout his letter. He did so like this in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard? God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has well, he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The hands of the living God, according to John 10, 25-30, should be those hands that pers- uh, ensure our eternal life so that no one can snatch them out of his hands. But God's hands are also used for judgment. And that's why he said it is a severer punishment. Not a death penalty, which was the worst thing the law of Moses could do. Not a death penalty, a physical death penalty, but an eternal death penalty. Eternal death. Eternal uh, destruction. This is what is a severer punishment. Chapter 12. 12, 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we, have received, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Reminding us again of the example of Moses and Sinai and the people of the wilderness. He says, if there was a penalty for them to refuse Moses, there will certainly be a penalty for us to refuse God. God who sends the message of salvation. Let's show gratitude and come to God in true worship. And remember, our God is a consuming fire. God is the fire that will consume the stubble of wicked people. He is the fire that will consume the thorns and the thistles described in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. God is the one who will do so. Therefore, we must make certain about our relationship to God. Now, let's go back to Hebrews 6 and see how he explains this and deal with a few more questions related to it. Hebrews 6, verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. Now, after describing those who press on to maturity, verses 1 and 2, he says that God is the one who will ensure and permit that that happens. But also, if God does not permit, if means he may permit to one, but he may not permit to another. So who are the other ones that God will not permit to press on to maturity, to bear fruit, who are under a curse, who will end up being burned by the fire of God? Who are they? They are described in verses 4 to 6 and verse 8. 4 to 6 and verse 8. Let's see. 
who he describes. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, notice, notice there, in the case, he's describing certain people, a case, a situation. What is the situation? It is what I just said. It is those people who have access to the word of God, but do not respond properly to that access, to that hearing, to that knowledge, to that reading of the Bible. They don't truly believe it, and they don't believe it because they don't obey it. Everybody can tell. They themselves can tell that their actions don't match up with their attitude towards the Bible. Those are the ones in the case of those. We have many examples biblically of this. We have the example of Adam and Eve. They had initially the two sons that we read about in chapter 4. And they had one son who obeyed, he had faith and he obeyed, and the other son who did not have faith and did not obey. We are speaking of Abel and Cain. Both were raised in the same household, both heard the word of God, both knew what to do. After all, Adam and Eve learned sacrifice from God, and then Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel. But one did it the right way, in faith, and in the right way, with the right sacrifice, and the other one did not. We find the same in Abraham's household. There was Isaac and there was Ishmael. Isaac was a man of faith, but Ishmael was a man of unbelief. The same thing in the case of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. They had two sons by Rebekah, one woman, one mother, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was a believer and Esau an unbeliever. What about in the time of Moses? Moses is preaching and he's teaching the people all kinds of things. He's a prophet of God. No other prophet of God heard the word of God like Moses did, face to face. And God did not speak to him in riddles and dark sayings and parables. He spoke to him plainly as a man speaks to his friend, face to face. In the tabernacle, in the most holy place of the tabernacle, where the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, radiated there, that's where Moses had communion with God. Now, this Moses preached to the multitudes of people, delivered them by great miracles out of the land of Egypt and throughout the wilderness for 40 years from Egypt and throughout the wilderness. He had so much revelation. He had so much word of God. He had so much power of God. He had so much that surrounded him that vindicated who he was before the people. There was no doubt before the people that God was speaking to Moses. They had no doubt from Sinai even in Egypt, they had no doubt that God was speaking to him. Yet, very few of them actually believed among them. The 600,000 soldiers, 20 years old and upwards, all those men, they all died over 40 years because they had unbelief. They refused to believe that God would give them the conquest of the land of Canaan. And then 10 of the 12 spies who came back with that bad report that demoralized the rest of the military, those 10 died of a plague immediately. We know of a few names, a few believers, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Caleb, Joshua. We know a few by name, and perhaps there were some others in the multitude of the people, but not the vast majority of them. They were laid low in the wilderness. We read that in Psalm 106 that many of them had superficial initial belief, initial belief, initial joy, initial, yes, we're going to follow the Lord. Whatever the Lord says, that we will do. They said that at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. They said that, those kinds of things. Yet they didn't really believe it. 
their joy was temporary. So, that's another example. What about in the New Testament? Are there examples in the New Testament? Sure. There are examples in the New Testament of people who are pretenders, who are in the mix, who hear the Word of God, who know the Word of God, who even preach the Word of God, but are fake. They're not true. We have the example, the clearest example is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot heard the Word of God. Judas Iscariot preached the Word of God according to Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissioned His disciples to preach the kingdom, which means the gospel, the Word of God. And all 12 are named. All of their names are there in Matthew 10. He commissioned all of them. He even gave them power, miraculous powers, to cast out demons, to heal diseases. He gave them this kind of power, and Judas was one of them. But Judas never was a believer. He never was a believer. He never became a believer. He was an unbeliever from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, and his grief and misery ended with him hanging himself. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5. He hanged himself. He was an unbeliever. We also have the example of Simon. Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. Simon the magician is hearing the disciples preach the word. He's excited initially. He's very excited. But then he shows his unbelief because it says in verse 18, Acts 8, 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Presumably, and church history in the early centuries bears this out, but this Simon when he says this in verse 24, it was a fake repentance because he ends up being known as Simon uh, Magnus who was a sorcerer who was pretending his Christianity but it was actually using it to mislead the people. He misled the people. And likely because of the way Peter describes him and the many things he says against him, he says, you have no part or portion your heart's not right before God, calls him to repent, pray if possible, pray if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. He's a slave to sin. He who commits sin is the slave of sin. But if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. An unbeliever, an example of somebody who heard but would not obey, but considered himself and told people that he was a believer. So, in the case of those. Now, further, he describes these people in Hebrews chapter 6 by saying that they have been once enlightened. Once enlightened. Each of these descriptors of verses 4 and 5 can be said of the people of Moses' generation. 
The generation of the wilderness can be described in each of these ways, but what they were experiencing, many times there were physical ways in which God typified the spiritual to them. Many ways that the physical typified or explained, illustrated the spiritual to the people under Moses. That's what he's describing here in many ways. And in the same way, whatever spiritual connection there is to what the generation experienced, it's also what we experience when we hear the word. Many times it's the same thing that we experience. That's why he's using this illustration of the generation of the wilderness to describe what actually is the spiritual connection and how also we participate in these same things. Examples. The first one, they have once been enlightened. Once enlightened. We do know that there was a light that guided the people throughout the wilderness. There was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to guide them and to enlighten their path, to shine light on their path so that they could know whatever uh, time of day it was, wherever they needed to go, God would guide them. He would give them that light. Well, that light was meant to signify and emphasize the fact that God is light. In Him there is no darkness. We need to know Him. We need to walk in His light, as it says in 1 John 1, 5-10, that we need to walk in the light as He is in the light. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It was meant to signify things like that. And there are some people who initially are enlightened in the spiritual way. Initially, their eyes open up. Oh, is that what the Bible means by that? Oh, okay, that's great, that's good. Initially, they get some kind of comprehension. Their eyes are enlightened, illuminated. Their mind is, spiritually speaking, in that way, and that's what he's saying. It, they have once had this happen to them. Oh, that sounds good. Now I understand it. Okay. But it only ends it. Then next. And have tasted of the heavenly gift. Have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, what did the people have under Moses that descended from heaven? It was the manna, right? They had the regular um, provision of the manna for the 40 years in the wilderness for six days a week and double the amount on the sixth day so that they could enjoy it on the seventh day. They had this for 40 years, a miraculous heavenly provision of manna. John chapter 6 describes the physical with the spiritual connection. It was intended to be a reminder of their need for the bread of heaven that is Christ himself. Christ himself. So they enjoyed the heavenly gift, this miraculous gift that came from above, from heaven, and it was intended to show them and to explain to them the person and work of Christ as the bread of heaven, as he calls himself. I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. So they were told and they comprehended some truths about Christ that way, just as there are many people today. If you explain the Bible to some people and some will say, well, I never heard or never understood why Jesus said this or Jesus did that, or that Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. I never saw any passages, but you just showed me, and that's great. Okay, that's good. I, I see that. The Bible does teach that now. And I understand why Jesus said this, or he said that. I comprehend it. So, I have tasted of what the Bible says about the person and work of Christ. Further, verse 4. 
and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They were made partakers. Notice, they did not partake because of their will, but they were made partakers of the Spirit. That means God's will, as he said in Hebrews 2, verse 4, that by uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These gifts of the Holy Spirit according to the will of God are given or were given to the people of the Old Testament, some of them in the Old Testament. For example, we have the, the time of Moses, the 70 elders in Numbers chapter 11, and, uh, or excuse me, Numbers chapter uh, 16, that, that there are elders that are given the Holy Spirit, 70 of them, and they did not do that on their own. It was God who made them to become partakers of the Holy Spirit. He made them to be partakers. But does that necessarily mean that because somebody partakes of the Holy Spirit, somebody has an experience of the Holy Spirit, that he is necessarily born again, a true believer? No, because we know that Judas Iscariot had that power, did he not? He had the power of the Spirit to heal diseases, to cast out demons. He had the power of the Spirit to correctly announce the gospel, the true gospel to people, which he did. Judas Iscariot had that. And in the Old Testament, we have the example of a false prophet or sorcerer named Balaam. Balaam Balaam had this experience of the Spirit of God come upon him in Numbers 24, verse 2. In Numbers 24, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He took up his discourse and he said, in Numbers 24, verse 2. So, in, in that case, we have an unbeliever, and we know he's an unbeliever from Jude 11 and 2 Peter 2, 14 to 16, that he was an unbeliever. He was an unbeliever, an example of a false teacher who exploited the people to get their money. Um, furthermore, oh, by the way, uh, my memory is coming back to me. It's Numbers chapter 11, where the 70 elders experience is there. Numbers 11, 16 and following. Numbers 11, 16 and following. Next, then verse 5. What else have they experienced? They have tasted the good word of God. They have tasted the good word of God. They heard the word of God and they tasted some good things about it. They, they tasted or they experienced what God said about the future, about his promises. It's very hard sometimes to reject when God says something good, a promise. You're going to experience, for example, this land of Canaan. I'm going to give you victory over the Canaanites. You're going to be able to live in a posh and luxurious land. Everything will be provided for you. You're initially going to receive this inheritance of the land, even though you're not going to be ones who planted these gardens. You're going to experience the fruit of those gardens. I'm going to give all this to you, and I will miraculously defeat your enemies. When they hear this good word of God, it will sound good to the people. And they will say, oh yes, that's what I want. And they will have this initial reaction, initial excitement. That's, that's what we're going to do. Yes, we're going to do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. That's what we want. 
They taste this good word of God in the same way we do, right? In the same way we hear, just as they did, the land of Canaan was a symbol of heaven. The land, inheriting the land of Canaan was a symbol of heaven, which Moses taught the people it was a symbol of heaven. So as a symbol of heaven, we also are taught to expect heaven. When we preach the gospel, we tell people there, there is this offer of forgiveness of sins in Christ. He died on the cross so that whoever believes in him should not perish. We teach these things to people. We tell them that there is eternal life that awaits. Heaven awaits, not hell. We may go to heaven if we believe in him, but we may not go to heaven. We will go to hell if we disbelieve. This is what we say. And to many people, it tastes good. It sounds good. And they say, yes, I'm in. I'm in. Sign me up. They say that, right? They taste this good word of God. And then it says in verse 5, and the powers of the age to come. Powers of the age to come. The signs or the miracles of the Bible are called signs because they signify something better and something eternal. Physical healing symbolizes spiritual healing, which lasts forever. And that the resurrection of the body will completely renovate our weak and frail, our uh, sin or uh, sickness-prone body. It will all be done away with in the future. That is the spiritual reality. If we are physically healed now, that's what happens, right? The powers of the age to come. Or in the case of those who are demon-possessed, if they are delivered from that demonic possession, it is representative of the fact that one day there will be no presence of sin within us or around us ever, forever and ever, because we are in heaven. We are with the Lord forever. So these powers that are experienced here in some way, in some lesser way, though good for us and our benefit, they are symbolizing something that's greater and superior, eternal powers, the powers of the age to come. That power that God has to last forever, he gives us a drop of it here, a taste of it there, whenever he does a miracle. That's what he did in the time of Moses. That's what he did in the time of Elijah and Elisha. He did that in the time of Isaiah, when Isaiah healed Hezekiah, so on. And even in the time of the apostles in Christ, they healed many people. And even now sometimes, there are people who are healed. I'm not speaking of those false healings in some of the movements within Christianity. I'm not speaking of that. I'm just talking about true healing, true deliverance. Sometimes that happens now. And when that happens... That is a taste, that is a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. That happens. Now, after all these benefits of verses 4 and 5, after all these benefits of 4 and 5, who in their right mind, in their right mind, would reject the gospel? Who would reject it? Think about that. If somebody had all of these benefits, who would reject these benefits? Who would reject them? The reality is, many people reject. The vast majority of people reject. Not the vast majority of people who never hear, but the vast majority of people who do hear. We're talking about those who do hear in this passage. 
the vast majority of people who do hear and receive these benefits absolutely reject the gospel. Is that not what happened to Moses? We described what Moses was, who he was, and what he did on behalf of the people, and yet the vast majority of those people under his leadership rejected the gospel message. And even in the time of Christ, the vast majority of people in the time of Christ rejected the gospel message. Did they not? They had multitudes at times following Jesus and his disciples. At times they did. The crowds enjoyed listening to him. They had healings. They had food. At times that happened. But when Jesus turned up the heat, when Jesus' words were more severe and biting and cutting in their ears, they walked away from him. John chapter 6 is the perfect example of this. And even throughout the book of John, there are many examples of this. But chapter 6, when he healed the, or, or fed the 5,000 and they followed him, he confronts them for following him. He fed them because it was late in the day and they were listening to his message and he did not want to send them home in the dark and weary in the dark. He did not want that to happen. So he provided miraculously food for 5,000 men plus women and children. 5,000 men plus women and children. Which means that there were probably about 10,000 at least, 10,000 people there at the very least. But what does it say by the end of John chapter 6? This is a difficult statement. When Jesus turned up the heat and he started teaching the truth to them, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And then it says, Many therefore of his disciples withdrew from him and were not following him anymore. When it says many were withdrew and were not following him anymore, it means that they all did. All of this multitude. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter spoke up and said the right things. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Peter spoke up for the rest of them. You have words of eternal life. We can't go anywhere else. So, according to the, the Bible, even Jesus, God, the Son of God, who came and took upon human flesh, who was born miraculously with a host of heavenly angels announcing this birth, first with Gabriel and then with the, the birth, uh, host of the heavenly angels there. Jesus from heaven, Jesus who was virgin born, Jesus who lived perfectly, Jesus who preached faithfully, Jesus who was the best illustrator of all time, Jesus who was the best at discoursing anything that had to do with God, Jesus who was the best miracle worker, Jesus who performed many, many, many miracles, Yet, they crucified him. And even the religious authorities were able to collect a mob to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And through a bunch of mockery and, and fake trials, they had him crucified. Jesus, Jesus Christ, they had that happen to him. Where were those 10,000 or more people? It was 5,000 men plus women and children on one occasion. And then 4,000 men plus women and children on another occasion. Where were all those people at that time? Why was it that when Jesus rose from the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 
that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. 500. Why was it not tens of thousands? Why was it not hundreds of thousands? Why was it not millions of people spreading the gospel from Israel to the surrounding nations so that they were all there to witness, eyewitness his resurrection? And then during that 40 years, between his, uh, 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, that 40-day period, he displayed himself with many convincing proof over a period of 40 days. Why was it that there were only 120? 120 only. Acts chapter 1. 120 people only waiting for the day of Pentecost. Why? Why? Where were all those people? My point in illustrating Moses and Jesus is to say that you, we, we often think that if we just have the right person there, if we just have the right words said, if the person who's speaking is winsome and convincing and charming enough, if he's handsome enough, if he's tall enough, if he's well-dressed enough, if, we, if he just does the right actions on the stage, if he just has the right music that precedes him, if he just has the carnival show that precedes him or follows him there on the stage, then the people will believe. Or if the preacher is a miracle worker, then the people will believe. It will happen. We have this notion. It's false. It's untrue. It's satanic, in fact. It's satanic. It's of the devil because that's not the way the devil works. I mean, I'm sorry, that's not the way God works. That's the way the devil works. God does not work that way. The devil works that way. God works through his word, correctly and accurately explained to people to convince them of the truth of God, to get their minds engaged, not their emotions aroused in some fanatical way, not to get their emotions aroused, their feelings, but to get their mind engaged on the truth of God. So, what he describes in Hebrews 6 is not something that is rare and occasional. It is very common. It is common. It happens all the time. Furthermore, this should not surprise us after hearing that it happened to Moses and it happened to Jesus. It should not surprise us that it happens to us because we are less than them. Not only are we less than them in calling and authority and person, Moses and Jesus, especially Jesus. Not only are we less than them, but we have sin. Jesus did not have sin. We have sin. We often think that if everything were just perfectly presented, perfectly presented, right now in our sinful world, then people will believe. How is that the case? What are we imagining? Is that not really uh, a weak argument? Is that not really a dotage, a fantasy? Because Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were in the Garden of Eden. They had everything provided for them. They had God there, God's favor. They had original righteousness. They were sinless. They had not committed a single sin when God initially created them, right? They had everything set before them. Yet, what did they do? Did they embrace that 100% perfect environment, 
perfect situation. Did they embrace it? Did they cling on to it? Did they hold fast to it? Did they, did they not let it slip out of their hands? Did they grasp it as though their whole life depended on it? No. They had no sin, and yet they fell into sin with a perfect environment. So what makes us think that in our generation where sin is everywhere, sin is inside of us, it's in everyone around us, it's in everything that happens every day, that if we just had the perfect situation, that person will believe. No, it's not true. It didn't happen to Adam and Eve and it will not happen now. It will not happen unless God permits it to happen. And how does he permit it? By his secret will and the Holy Spirit working secretly in the hearts of men and by his revealed will, his word of God. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to produce a child of God. That's the way it happens. That's the way. Therefore, what he says in verse 6 should not surprise us. Should not surprise us because this happens. Now what is, what is he describing in verse 6? And then have fallen away. They have all of this marvelous truth, marvelous experience, and then have fallen away. They turn away from it. They reject it. They show in their words, in their works, however they show, they show that they are turning away from it. They're falling away from it. He's describing apostasy here. The apostate. Somebody who falls away from what he initially experienced, what he initially says he believed, and he even convinced himself perhaps that he believed it truly, but he did not really. He says they have fallen away. When these people fall away, it is falling away not from true salvation, but from the true experiences or hearing of that salvation. They hear of true salvation, but they did not really have it. It was not really their possession. They may have thought it was their possession. Somebody may have told them it was their possession, but it was not really their possession. They were professors not possessors, as someone has said. They were professors, not possessors of true salvation. That's what they fall away from. They fell away from that. Now we may ask, what causes people to fall away? What causes them to fall away? There are many things that cause people to fall away. Internally, we've been saying it's the evil human heart. And we all have also said that the Holy Spirit has not changed their heart. All of that is true. But let's look at it and contemplate it in relation to earthly things. What earthly agents or what earthly instruments are used in order to cause people to fall away? What causes that to happen? Matthew chapter 13 explains. Matthew 13 explains some of the earthly circumstances that cause people to fall away. Matthew 13, after Jesus announced the parable of the sower, seed, and soil, he announced it in the first part of the chapter. He explains why he speaks in parables after that. And then in verse 18, he explains the parable. Matthew 13, 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. 
Pause there. This one, this first soil, he hears the word. We're talking about access, just like Hebrews 6. They have access to the word. They hear it. The word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom is the gospel, the word of truth. They hear it. They do not understand it, he says. So they hear it, but they're, they're just staring in as, as though they're staring in, into outer space. They have, their, their eyes are glazed over. They have no clue about what's being said. They hear the words. They hear the, the preacher. They hear certain sounds. They hear even Jesus, Christ, gospel, salvation, sins. They hear these words, but they don't get it. Nothing registers to them. They hear those words, but they don't understand those words. When they don't understand those words, what happens? The evil one, the devil comes and takes away what is sown in his heart. Notice, sown in his heart. It was in the heart, but the devil takes it out of the heart. Okay, I went that that day and I heard that pastor talk about sin. I heard that pastor say righteousness, but then I don't understand what he was talking about. And then he walks away. He doesn't come back to it. He has no desire to come back to it. And then he even forgets. Oh, yeah, I did go many, many years ago. I went to a church and he doesn't remember because this devil took it out. He doesn't think, oh, many, many years ago I went and somebody said righteousness. Somebody said sin. Well, I need to figure out what he meant by that. He doesn't pursue it because the devil took it completely out of him, out of his mind. And here described as heart, inside of his spiritual nature. So, verse 20, the next one. 20 and 21. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. We note in verses 20 to 21, I think the key word is immediately. Immediately. This is talking about a fickle fellow. It's talking about somebody fickle who has this temporary, ephemeral kind of faith. Verse 20, it says, the one who hears the word immediately receives it with joy. Oh, that sounds good. Yes, I want that. That's what he says. Yes, I want eternal life. Yes, I want God to be with me. I want God to bless me. They hear that good thing and they say, yes, they have this temporary joy. Temporary. It's temporary, we know, because he says, immediately receives it with joy. And then it says in verse 21, immediately falls away. There's our term, fall away, turn away, apostatize, becomes an apostate. This is what he is doing. He falls away from it. Now, we're talking about what causes him to fall away. In verse 19, it was the lack of comprehension and the work of the devil. In verses 20 to 21, what, what is the problem? He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. So he doesn't have a good root. Remember, a good root produces a good fruit. Hebrews 6, verse 7. And the good fruit receives a blessing from God. But in this case, he does not have a good root because he's in himself. He's not rooted in Christ. He's rooted in himself. If he's rooted in himself, he's going to bring forth wickedness. He's going to bring forth evil deeds. He's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And what is it that triggers it? 
What is it that causes him to immediately fall away? He mentions two things. Affliction or persecution arises because of the word. Affliction and persecution because of the word. Oh, okay. So somebody says, I became a Christian yesterday. And he goes and tells his family, goes and tells his friends, co-workers. He goes and says, I became a Christian yesterday. So-and-so preacher came and this is what I did. And immediately what happens? Ah, you did that? What? You're a fool. You're crazy. You're a madman. I don't want to be your friend anymore, his friends say. And then what does that new Christian do? Well, I don't want to lose that friendship. I don't want to lose that family member. I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose my job, he'll say. Whatever it is, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose. Persecution arises or affliction because of the word. He identifies himself as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, and then the attacks come. And when the attacks come, immediately he falls away. Actually, you know, it's not such a big deal after all. I value my friendships and my family more than I value God. That's what goes on in his mind. So he falls away. And then 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. There's lack of fruit in these first three soils. Lack of fruit. There's no true fruit in the first three soils. We know it's not because only verse 23 describes good fruit. And in verse 22 he says it's unfruitful. Even compare the parallel passages in Mark 4 and Luke chapter 8. Mark 4 and Luke 8, the parallel passages, and there you will find that this the first three soils are unfruitful soils. So, what causes this one to turn away, become unfruitful, thorns and thistles? Verse 22. This was seed sown among the thorns. He hears the word, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The worries of the world, the anxieties of the world. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? With what will I clothe myself? Where am I going to live? What's, what, what am I going to do with the money that I have? He also calls it here, the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitfulness of riches, he says. Deceitfulness of riches. Riches are appealing, right? The pot of gold, the jewelry, whatever it is, it looks very good. It looks very beautiful. I want that. I need that. I will do whatever it takes to obtain it. And everything else, he's, he's, his eyes are open to that and his eyes are blinded to everything else that is going on in his life because he has that one object in front of him. The deceitfulness of riches. That's one way it deceives. Another way it deceives is security, false security. If I have, you see, what I really need is if I have a million dollars in my bank account, and I, I will always have something to fall back on. And, when I, and whenever I have that, my whole life will be at peace. I'll be in harmony. I'll have everything. I won't have to worry about anything. My life will be great and good if I just have that million dollars or whatever the amount is. If I just have that, then everything will be fine. No. That will cause you to be smug and secure in your own self. 
confidence in yourself. Now, we're not talking about saving money and being diligent and responsible with money. That's not the issue. What the issue is, is false confidence in our possessions. False confidence so that they distract you, they delay you, they trap you, they deceive you into thinking, I don't need to think about spiritual things, or I shouldn't have that as my focus. When Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Jesus said, first seek his kingdom. When he said first, he didn't mean first temporarily, or first for one minute, or first one day a week, or first for one hour a week. He didn't mean it like that. He meant it should be who you are. Then you can use your riches for godly things. Not for spending and squandering on your own frills and your own whims. Not like that. On the things of God. To promote the kingdom of God. That's the way riches need to be used. And if they're not used, they are the God. That's why Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You either hate the one and love the other, but you cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24. And finally, finally, the good ground, verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. In this case, in verse 23, it's good ground because the heart is prepared. It's good heart. Like we read in Isaiah 5, God prepared everything on the outside of that garden. He equipped it, but it did not bear fruit. The good ground, though, has a good heart. It has a good heart, and when it does, it understands, it hears the word, it understands it. So a good heart will have access to the word and desire access to the word, understand it, and if he doesn't understand it, he'll go find a way to understand it. And verse 23, who indeed bears fruit. Indeed. There's no, there's no question. There's no lack, there's no confusion. There's no lack of understanding. Is that person a believer or not? He indeed bears fruit, it says. Indeed bears fruit. And you might ask, what is fruit? The deeds of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. Read Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, describing also the difference between our old man and our new man. This is the way the Bible is. One place after another. Many, many people. As we said earlier, Abel and Cain can be contrasted. You can know the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. Isaac and Ishmael can be contrasted. Jacob and Esau can be contrasted. Moses and the people of Israel can and should be contrasted. Elijah and King Ahab are contrasts. All of these contrasts are there in the scriptures to show us the difference between good fruit and rotten fruit. Good fruit and thorns and thistles. That's why the Bible teaches us like that. So indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The amount of fruit is different, not the same with every individual, yet there is fruit. There's no lack of fruit and there are no thorns and thistles that consume and identify the person. So those are the kinds of things that turn away people but also describe people. People who have fallen away and those who have not fallen away. 
Now, back to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, when he says that they have fallen away, he also says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Impossible to renew them again to repentance. When he says impossible, it does not mean possible in certain situations. That means that there's no reversing course. Once they are in that condition, they are in that condition because their heart is so hardened, it is irreparable. There is no solution, no resolution because God has given them over. Romans 1, 24. Romans 1, 26. Romans 1, 28. God has given them over to the lusts of their heart. He has given them over. They are reprobate. They are so staunch and determined and stubborn in their wickedness, there's no turning them back. This is what he meant when he described Esau. Esau was like that, Hebrews 12. This is what he's describing about Israel in the wilderness, Hebrews 3 and 4. It's impossible. There are people, some people, who get to a point that they are so, um, so stubborn and hard in their thinking that they are uh, it's impossible to turn them away from that. The Bible is describing a reality that we should make sure we are not in that position. Impossible to renew again to repentance. There is examples, there are examples in the Bible of this being the case. For example, in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, John says, this in verse 16, 516. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. That is, when a brother, somebody who's claiming to be a brother in the church, when they are committing sin leading to death, he says, I do not say that he should make requests for this. That is, let it go. He is so persistent, so stubborn in his sin. He does not want to listen. He's committing sin leading to death. Therefore, don't pray for him. I, I do not say he should make requests for this. Paul the Apostle had the same experience. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Paul is preaching... And some people, some of the people are resisting. 18 verse 6. 18 6. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. They resisted, they blasphemed. So he shook out his garments as an example of God shaking dust and shaking the dust off our feet, being worthless, right? Dust is worthless. So he shook out his garments and said, your blood be upon your own heads. I was responsible to the extent that I was supposed to proclaim the truth to you. I did proclaim it. Now after I proclaimed it and you are rejecting this truth, your blood, the guilt of your sin, the punishment of your sin is on your own head. It's not on mine, it's on yours. I'm clean and you are filthy. You are guilty and filthy. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. I'll go to other people 
and find among them people who will listen. So he quits them and goes to others. And Jesus, even our Lord Jesus, did the same. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verse 29. Here he pronounces several woes and says in 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers or partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That, that introduces a purpose. That, or in order that, upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says in verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Fill up. He's commanding them, this is an imperative, a command for them to continue to practice sin so that they can be punished for their sin. You reject me, you persist in rejecting, you keep blaspheming me, keep on doing that, and I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes, believing scribes, some of them you will kill and some crucify, that you might have all this righteous blood put on your head. All on your head. He's not calling them to repentance because there is no repentance for them. He's saying it's impossible for them to be repentant. To repent, so judgment on you, on your you and your generation. So that's what he means in Hebrews 6 6. Impossible. You heard the truth, but you rejected it. You manifested your persistent rejection of this truth, so it's that's the end for you. He further says to renew them again to repentance. It's a renewal again to repentance. Because initially they had a superficial repentance. The superficial repentance, if that is what they put their hope in and they don't truly repent, then it's impossible to renew to the true repentance. It's impossible to have true repentance when you put your confidence in the false repentance. It's better not to hear the truth, according to 2 Peter 2.20-22. It's better not to hear the truth than to hear it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to you, he says. That's why it's impossible to renew to repentance. Then, when we speak of repentance, we have to keep in mind that there is true repentance and false repentance. There's true repentance and false repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, explains that there is a difference between true repentance and false repentance. And he says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world produces death, but the sorrow that's according to God's will produces a repentance without regret. 
that repentance without regret leads to salvation, he says, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Whose sorrow, who had fake sorrow or ungodly sorrow in the Bible? We know Pharaoh did. Pharaoh did at one point. Pharaoh regretted some of the plagues that were coming upon him, but Moses confronted him and said, I know you have not yet, uh, you do not yet fear the Lord. Remember King Ahab. Ahab repented in a false way when Elijah confronted him, 1 Kings 21, but he was a faker in 1 Kings 21. King Ahab was because he is used as one of the models of an evil king throughout the book of Kings, especially in 1 Kings and then in 2 Kings, and also in the case of Judas. Judas had fake repentance. He had sorrow, did he not? He had sorrow. It says in Matthew 27, 3 to 5, he had sorrow, and he even admitted that he, is, uh, he has uh, guilty of innocent blood. He says that he knew that he is guilty of innocent blood. He knew that, and yet he went away and hanged himself. So there is fake sorrow, and that's the kind of sorrow that should not be the case with what we're describing in Hebrews 6. It should be godly sorrow leading to repentance, leading to salvation, not fake and phony sorrow. And why? Because if there is fake repentance, if there is fake repentance, and they fall away or turn away from what they said they initially believed, they said they believed in the gospel. They believed Jesus died for their sins. They said that. But if they don't actually live that way, believe that way, they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Meaning what? You see, when we truly believe that Jesus died for our sins, we do not need Jesus crucified in any sense again. We don't need Him crucified again. And we don't put Him to shame. But if we deny what we said we initially, initially believed, that Jesus died for our sins, if we say Jesus died for our sins and we reject that later, then why did he die? He died for some ignoble reason. He died for some dishonorable reason, shameful reason. Maybe he deserved it. He was a political rebel. That's why he died. He deserved to die. He was a rebel. He should not have been a, a rebel. He died for, for, because of his own crimes. He was a criminal worthy of death. He committed murder or he did this or that and he deserved to die. So he was a shameful criminal. If we do not ascribe the right purpose for his death, we will ascribe a wrong one, a shameful one. And it says God, God's going to judge the person who does that. Then verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. We've already described, verse 7, the good ground produces fruit, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 13, 1 to 23. The bad ground produces thorns and thistles, and it will be cursed and burned. Only two outcomes. That, that's how important this is. We must believe the truth, the truth of the Bible. Don't play with it. Don't be superficial with it. Don't be artificial with it. Don't pretend. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive others. The Christian life is a life of life and death, a blessing and a curse. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. This is the true word of God. 
This is also the true grace of God. The true grace of God that it should be proclaimed is that grace that saves us from sin and sanctifies us from sin. It should sanctify us. If that sanctification is not evident and growing, then there's no fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no root. There has to be good fruit, which is evidence of a good root. Then the root is in the heart. And the heart is changed by the Spirit of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.